Hey, it's Shannon Ballard. If you're new to Southern Mysteries and enjoy the show, you can always hear more when you become a member on Patreon. As an independent podcast, your support makes Southern Mysteries possible. And I want to say thanks to our newest Southern Mysteries patrons. Lindsay from Gray, Georgia. Miranda from Jacksonville, Florida. Tammy from Horton, Alabama. Gregory from Pleasant Garden, North Carolina. Alex from Lawrenceburg, Tennessee. Stacy from Enterprise, Alabama. Sarah from Waldorf, Maryland. Genevieve from Las Vegas. Jill from Hemlock, Michigan. And Captain America, who apparently resides and listens to the show in Seaford, Delaware. And also a big thanks to our patrons listening from mysterious locations. Sheila, Tracy, Terry, Pamela, Verna, Kimberly, Ginger, Cheryl, and Timothea. If you would like to join them and hear ad-free episodes, the Southern Mysteries archive of more than 60 episodes, plus the new monthly patron-exclusive podcast, Audacious, Tales of American Crime, you can sign up now and start listening at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. Jackson, Mississippi's West County Line Road leads you to the Jackson Field Office of the FBI. In 2011, the federal building was renamed to recognize the sacrifice of three civil rights workers and the agent who headed the investigation into their disappearance. The James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, Michael Schwerner, and Roy K. Moore Federal Building honor civil rights workers Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner who were murdered near Philadelphia, Mississippi in the summer of 1964. FBI agent Roy Moore led the investigation of many civil rights crimes, including what's known as the Freedom Summer Murders. In the summer of 1964, the center of the civil rights efforts was in the state of Mississippi. Activists encouraged voter registration for black Mississippians because fewer than 7% of those eligible to vote were registered at the time and often faced backlash, even violence from segregationists when they attempted to register. In June 1964, the Imperial Wizard of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan of Mississippi carried out Plan Number 4. The plan was for Klansmen in Lauderdale and Neshoba counties to enforce opposition to integration in Mississippi by eliminating targeted civil rights workers. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the story of the Freedom Summer Murders of 1964. The 1964 Freedom Summer Project was organized to raise nationwide awareness of the violence Black Mississippians experienced when they made an attempt to exercise their constitutional rights. The project was also created to establish a grassroots freedom movement that could be sustained after activists left the state. The Freedom Summer Project was organized by Bob Moses, a former staff member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, known as SNCC. SNCC helped organize successful campaigns in Birmingham and Montgomery, but in Jackson, Mississippi, and in rural areas of the state, segregationists violently resisted campaigns of this kind. 
1961, Moses launched a voter registration drive in Mississippi to challenge the state system that disenfranchised black Mississippians with strict segregation laws and in too many cases, fear and intimidation tactics. Moses became the director of the Council of Federated Organizations in 1962. The coalition of organizations led by SNCC coordinated the efforts of Mississippi civil rights groups, which encountered intense resistance from segregationists in rural Mississippi. SNCC had breakthroughs with campaigns of this kind in Birmingham and Montgomery, but there was a stronghold of resistance in Mississippi. Ultimately, organizers felt if they could shine a light on what was happening in Mississippi, there could be a nationwide outcry for change that could lead to a breakthrough for civil rights in the state and across the country. In January 1964, Bob Moses announced the Mississippi Summer Project, which called on northern white student volunteers to join local campaigns in Mississippi that summer. Moses and fellow activists spoke at many universities across the country in an effort to organize large numbers of student volunteers. They outlined these goals of Freedom Summer, to expand black voter registration in the state of Mississippi, to organize a legally constituted Freedom Democratic Party that would challenge the whites-only Mississippi Democratic Party, to establish freedom schools to teach reading and math to black children, and to open community centers where poor Mississippians could obtain legal and medical assistance. In the early 1960s, Mississippi was the poorest state in the country. 86% of the non-white population lived below the national poverty line, and less than 7% were registered voters. Whites resisted integration and black voter registration by saying black Mississippians just didn't care about voting or have any need for rights. Despite this resistance, black Mississippians tried to register, but doing so could lead to violence and often cost them their livelihood. When a boss learned they waited in line to register to vote, more often than not, they were fired. Waiting in a line to register to vote took courage but it rarely ended in black voter registration because of the registration test administered by white registrars. In 1954, there was a dramatic increase in the rate of literacy of black Mississippians. In response, the state changed part of the application for registration from a section known as read or interpret test of the Mississippi Constitution to read and interpret the Mississippi Constitution. Because interpretation was added as a requirement, white registrars had the power to decide if you passed or failed. A majority of black people who took the test, including those with doctoral degrees, were told they failed. For whites, a majority passed, even if they had little to no education. Hundreds of white students who listen to activists like Bob Moses and Fannie Lou Hamer share about Mississippi and the goals of the Mississippi Freedom Project signed up to join the movement. In the spring of 1964, Aaron Henry, the head of the Mississippi NAACP branch, spoke at Queens College in New York City. He was joined by fellow Mississippian and civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer. 
one of the students they recruited to participate in the Freedom Summer Project was 20-year-old Andrew Goodman. Goodman was Jewish, and his family was devoted to social justice. They supported Andrew's decision to join the project. In early June 1964, Goodman met fellow New Yorker, 24-year-old Michael Schwerner, and 21-year-old Mississippi civil rights activist James Cheney in Ohio to teach training sessions for some of the nearly 1,000 students who joined Freedom Summer. Volunteers were required to participate in the one-week orientation at Western College for Women in Oxford. The majority white volunteers were young, on average 21 years old, and came from well-to-do families. The training prepared volunteers to register black voters and teach literacy and civics at the planned Freedom Schools. SNCC activists also informed volunteers they had to bring $500 for bail and would need money for living expenses, transportation home, and medical bills. The medical bill money was the money they would have to spend for treatment if they were attacked, which was highly likely for civil rights activists in Mississippi in the 1960s. SNCC's James Foreman told the students that if they were going to be a part of Freedom Summer, they had to be prepared to die. Foreman emphasized nonviolent resistance was crucial for volunteers. They were to go quietly to jail and not resist arrest or any pursuit by police. In February 1964, the month after Bob Moses announced the project, preparations were underway in Mississippi to resist it. On February 15th, the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan of Mississippi held their founding meeting. On April 24th, the KKK organized and burned crosses at 61 locations across the state. This was the Klan's primary attempt at intimidation, a warning to Mississippi-based activists like Michael Schwerner, who was Jewish, and James Cheney, who was black. Michael Schwerner had been actively engaged in the civil rights movement since the early 1960s. He led his Manhattan-based Congress of Racial Equality Group, known as CORE. As activism increased in the South and plans were underway for Freedom Summer, Schwerner and his wife Rita were recruited to organize activities for CORE's Meridian Mississippi Community Center. There, the Schwerners met volunteer and Meridian native James Cheney. Cheney played a vital role in creating a bridge between established black civil rights activists in Mississippi and Northerners who volunteered to go to the state to help the cause. Understandably, there were questions from black organizers and activists about whether a white person could truly join in a cause they did not understand because they did not live the reality of being black in the Jim Crow South especially this model of Freedom Summer, in which hundreds of white Northerners would come to Mississippi for a few months and then leave. James Cheney had been involved in the civil rights movement since 1962, when he participated in freedom rides from Tennessee to Greenville, Mississippi, and from Greenville to Meridian. He volunteered for Corps Meridian in 1963, where he organized voter education classes 
introduced core workers to local church leaders, and helped core workers navigate the county. James Cheney was born and raised in Meridian. He knew the country roads across Lauderdale and nearby Neshoba counties, which was critical for transportation, organization, and safety when volunteers from other areas joined the cause. Cheney's relationship with churches opened doors for core leaders as well. In 1964, Cheney met with leaders at Mount Nebo Baptist Church and gained their support to let Schwerner address church members and ask them to use their church for voter education and registration sites. And the church said yes. As word spread of the planned Freedom Summer, to engage white students from across the country to join civil rights activists in Mississippi. The Schwerners and fellow activists were tracked by spies from the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission. The commission was a taxpayer-funded agency established as part of the executive branch, which meant the Sovereignty Commission included the governor, lieutenant governor, the speaker of the house, the attorney general, two state senators, three state representatives, and at a minimum, three citizens. In carefully worded legislation to create the commission in 1956, its mission was written as a way to do and perform any and all acts and things deemed necessary and proper to protect the sovereignty of the state of Mississippi from encroachment by the federal government or any branch, department, or agency. Encroachment was code for forced racial integration. James Coleman, the governor of Mississippi from 1956 to 1960, openly spoke of the commission in speeches in which he referred to the agency as a resource to maintain a fight to preserve the separation of races in Mississippi. The Sovereignty Commission wanted to maintain what it called the Mississippi way of life white supremacy. To accomplish this goal, the agency would spy on over 87,000 Americans during its operation. This began with the commission's need to know the names and details of black civil rights activists in the state and anyone associated with the movement. If you engaged in civil rights activism in Mississippi, there was a secret file with your name on it and information was passed along to those who shared the commission's mission to protect white supremacy in the state. Soon after the Schwerners arrived in Mississippi, Michael started going door to door in white working class neighborhoods of Meridian. He tried to engage people in a conversation about civil rights. He then organized a black boycott of a popular store until it hired its first black employee. The boycott slogan was, don't shop where you can't work. In light of what he knew about the planned Freedom Summer Project and the bold activism of volunteers like Michael Schwerner, Sam Bowers, the imperial wizard of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan of Mississippi, deemed Michael Schwerner and those working closely with him a threat that had to be stopped. In late May 1964, Bowers sent a message to Klansmen of Lauderdale and Neshoba counties, saying it was time to activate Plan 4. Plan 4 was code for elimination of the, quote, despised civil rights activist 
Michael Schwerner. On June 16, 1964, the Klan attempted to murder Schwerner. That day, the black congregation at Mount Zion Church in Longdale, a community in rural Neshoba County, planned to hold a business meeting. The Klan knew Schwerner and Cheney visited the congregation on Memorial Day to ask for permission to use the church as a freedom school. And the Klan believed Schwerner would return to the church for the business meeting with Cheney. The Klan did not know Schwerner and Cheney were in Ohio teaching orientation sessions for Freedom Summer. Around 10 p.m., the meeting at Mount Zion Church ended as seven black men and three black women exited the building, they were met by more than 30 men clothed in white robes and hoods, lined up with rifles and shotguns. Additional Klan members moved in from the rear of the church and called out for Schwerner and Cheney. Frustrated to learn the civil rights workers were not there, some of the Klansmen began to beat church members. Others removed 10 gallons of gasoline from their truck, and set Mount Zion Church on fire. Mount Zion was one of 20 black churches firebombed in Mississippi that summer. The FBI's investigation into these attacks was codenamed M.I. Burn for Mississippi Burning. When news of the attack on Mount Zion reached Schwerner and Cheney in Ohio, they made arrangements to leave as soon as possible so they could return to Mississippi to investigate and try to determine the identity of people involved. They asked Andrew Goodman if he wanted to come with them, since he had already planned to be in Mississippi that summer, and Goodman said yes. They left Ohio on June 20th to make the long drive back to Meridian. The following day, June 21st, they visited the site of Mount Zion and spoke with church members who had been attacked that afternoon, as James Cheney was driving them back to Meridian in Corps' signature blue Ford station wagon, they were pulled over on Mississippi Highway 19 by Neshoba County Deputy Sheriff Cecil Price. Price informed Cheney he pulled him over for speeding in the city limits of Philadelphia. Price then informed the three they were suspects in the church arson. All three of the civil rights workers were arrested and held in the Neshoba County Jail. They did not resist arrest because the men knew who they were dealing with. Cecil Price and the Neshoba County Sheriff, Lawrence Rainey, were both known to be members of the Klan, and they were known to be especially violent when it came to Black people. The men were denied their request for a phone call, which caused concern at the core office in Meridian. Before the three left the core office, they told a volunteer they should be back in the office by 4 p.m. Michael Schwerner specifically instructed this volunteer, Sue Brown, that if, they, that if they weren't back by 4.30, she should start making phone calls to local jails. 4.30 came and went with no sign of them. Sue Brown started making those phone calls including a call to the Neshoba County Jail. She was told the men weren't there. That response was based on a direct order from the sheriff, who told the staff that if someone inquired about the men, they were not to reveal they were in the jail. This was a calculated move on the part of the sheriff's office that played an active role in what happened that night. 
While Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner were in jail, Deputy Cecil Price met with Neshoba County Klan recruiter Edgar Ray Killen to plan what would happen to the civil rights workers that night. Killen, who was also a Baptist preacher, had recruited members of the Neshoba and Lauderdale County Claverns. He called a meeting with members that afternoon at the Longhorn Drive-In in Meridian. The key members listened to the plan and then suggested the names of eager young recruits who would be willing to kill. Killen met with a dozen of these young recruits and ordered them to buy rubber gloves and meet him in Philadelphia by 8.15 that night. We know at least seven of them met Killen near the Neshoba County Jail, where he walked them through the plan and then left. Killen attended a visitation for a recently departed uncle and established his alibi. Around 10 p.m., after James Cheney paid the speeding fine, the three men were released from Neshoba County Jail. Cecil Price led them to their parked station wagon, then followed them in his patrol car as they headed east out of town on Highway 19. It was after 10 p.m. on a rural dark road in Neshoba County. Just moments before Cheney crossed the border into Lauderdale County, a truck sped up behind the station wagon, and the driver began flashing lights and driving aggressively as they pursued the civil rights workers. Cheney hit the gas and swerved quickly onto Highway 492. There were now two other vehicles in a procession following the station wagon, along with Deputy Cecil Price in his patrol car. The high-speed pursuit of Cheney ended only when Cecil Price hit his patrol car lights. Cheney braked and pulled over. Many people have wondered why Cheney stopped that night, but his actions were in line with training that had been reiterated over and over again for civil rights workers. Do not resist police. Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner were ordered out of the car and into Cecil Price's patrol car. As Price began to drive toward a deserted area on Rock Cut Road, he was followed by the other vehicles, driven by those Klan recruits. Informants later revealed to the FBI that Wayne Roberts, a 26-year-old dishonorably discharged ex-Marine, was one of the trigger men. He shot Michael Schwerner and Andrew Goodman. Klansman James Jordan shot James Cheney once before Roberts fired a final shot to, as he put it, make sure Cheney was dead. The Klansmen loaded the bodies into the core station wagon and drove it to a planned burial site on Old Jolly Farm. The farm was owned by Philadelphia businessman and Klansman Olin Burrish. The bodies were buried by a bulldozer in an earthen dam that was under construction at the time. While the civil rights workers were buried, Cecil Price drove back to the jail and met with Sheriff Rainey around 12.30 a.m., reportedly telling him what happened after the men were released from jail. Around the same time, workers at the core office in Meridian called John Doerr their Justice Department contact in Mississippi to inform him three civil rights workers were missing. By 6 a.m. on June 22nd, Doerr had contacted the FBI and officially invested them with the power to investigate a possible violation of federal law. Meridian-based FBI agent John Proctor 
was sent to Neshoba County to interview black community leaders and anyone who had seen the missing workers since their return from Ohio. This included interviews with Neshoba County Sheriff Rainey and Deputy Price. Within 24 hours, 10 FBI special agents joined Proctor in Neshoba County. Some authorities, including President Lyndon B. Johnson, initially claimed the disappearance of the civil rights workers could be a stunt to garner attention for the civil rights movement, but Agent Proctor learned quickly this was real. He got the first break in the investigation when he received a tip that a smoldering car had been seen in the northeast part of Neshoba County. This led the FBI to a burned-out station wagon that was confirmed to be registered to the Corps office in Meridian. On June 23rd, President Johnson met with Attorney General Robert Kennedy to get an update on the case and discuss his administration's response in Mississippi. On June 25th, President Johnson approved the federal military to join the search. Buses full of military members arrived in Neshoba County and searched through swamps and woods. By now, the Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner families knew the search was to bring the bodies of their loved ones home for burial. Many black people, including civil rights workers, had gone missing in the South before the Freedom Summer. As Michael Schwerner's wife Rita would say, people across the country, even the president, were paying attention this time, only because two of those civil rights workers were white. James Cheney's mother, Fanny Cheney, said if her son had been alone, nothing would have been done. If Fanny Cheney was right, in the course of the investigation, rivers were dragged and searched. The bodies of eight young black men were found, including 14-year-old Herbert Orsby, who was wearing a core t-shirt. Nothing had been done to find him or the other seven young men who went missing. As the search continued for the missing civil rights workers, President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act into law on July 2nd. Days later, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover arrived in Jackson and announced the FBI was officially opening an office in Mississippi that would be headed by Roy K. Moore. On July 31st, the FBI learned critical information, the probable location of the bodies. The FBI had promised a $30,000 reward for that information, this was done to try to turn Klan members and anyone involved in the conspiracy to turn against one another and talk. Ultimately, it worked. Between June 22nd and the end of July, the FBI interviewed just over 1,000 Mississippians, including 500 members of the KKK. An informant came forward with a tip about the location of the bodies. 44 days after their disappearance, the bodies of Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner were found 14 feet below that earthen dam on Old Jolly Farm. One of the men present the day the bodies were discovered was Cecil Price. The FBI inspector Joseph Sullivan personally invited Price to assist in the recovery efforts this was because Sullivan believed Price was involved in the disappearance of these men. He wanted to see his reaction during the search, and most importantly, 
wanted to see his reaction when the bodies were discovered. That day, Cecil Price picked up a shovel and began to dig with his fellow searchers. He never indicated any of this bothered him, even when someone yelled out that they found the civil rights workers. Their bodies were transported to the University of Mississippi Medical Center in Jackson for autopsy. At Sullivan's request, one of the men who helped escort the bodies was Cecil Price. On August 7th, a memorial service was held for James Cheney in his hometown of Meridian. David Dennis of CORE spoke at the service. I'm not here to do the traditional thing most of us do at such a gathering. That is of telling what a great person the individual was, some of the great works that the person was involved in, and etc. I think we all know because he walked these dusty streets of Meridian and around here long before I came here, with you and around you, played with your kids, and he talked to all of you. What I want to talk about is really what I really grieve about. I don't grieve for Cheney because the fact I feel that he lived a fuller life than many of us would ever live. I feel that he's gotten his freedom and we're still fighting for it. The bodies of Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner were returned to their homes in New York, where memorial services were held a week later. On October 13th, Klan member James Jordan confessed he was directly involved in the conspiracy to kill the civil rights workers and agreed to full cooperation in the investigation. By November, Jordan's fellow Klan member, Horace Barnett, also confessed. The case had been complicated from the beginning and was further complicated because only the state of Mississippi had legal authority to file murder charges, which they refused to do. The FBI could only file federal charges for violation of civil rights. On December 4th, 19 Klansmen from Neshoba and Lauderdale counties were arrested and charged with violating the civil rights of Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner. Six days later, a U.S. commissioner dismissed the charges, only to have a federal grand jury in Jackson reindict all 19 in early January 1965. Years of court battles continued, with indictments being dismissed by segregationist judges in Mississippi and several grand juries hearing the case and re-indicting the Klansmen. In February 1967, Sam Bowers was added to the list of defendants who were indicted on a single conspiracy charge in a superseding indictment by a federal grand jury in the Southern District of Mississippi. On October 7, 1967, their trial began in a Meridian courtroom overseen by Judge William Cox. Chief Prosecutor John Doerr openly expressed his concern about Cox overseeing the trial. The segregationists had once referred to a group of black men testifying in his courtroom in a voting rights case as a bunch of chimpanzees. John Doerr knew there was no changing the judge, so he had to move forward. Doerr's case focused on the Klan leadership defendants, Sam Bowers and Edgar Ray Killen, along with the defendants who were directly involved in the murders, those who pulled the trigger and assisted in the burial 
at Old Jolly Farm. 151 witnesses testified before the case was handed to the jury. On October 20th, seven defendants, mostly from Lauderdale County, were convicted. Deputy Sheriff Cecil Price, Imperial Wizard Sam Bowers, Trigger Man Wayne Roberts, along with Jimmy Snowden, Billy Posey, and Horace Barnett. Seven defendants, mostly from Neshoba County, were acquitted, including Sheriff Lawrence Rainey, the burial site owner, Olin Burridge, and the Klan's exalted Cyclops, Frank Herndon. In the case of three defendants, the jury was unable to reach a verdict. One of those men was Edgar Ray Killen. The jury voted 11 to 1 to convict him, with the one holdout saying she could not bring herself to convict Killen because he was a Baptist preacher. The 1967 convictions were the first in Mississippi for the killing of a civil rights worker. Roberts and Bowers were sentenced to 10 years, Posey and Price to six years, and the other three sentenced to four. Cecil Price served four of his six-year sentence before he returned home to his family in Philadelphia. Decades passed, and the families of Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner had never seen justice for their loved ones. No murder charges had ever been filed by the state for the brutal Freedom Summer murders. In January 2004, the Philadelphia Coalition in Neshoba County organized to seek justice. The multiracial group held a gathering on June 21st of 2004, the 40th anniversary of the murders of Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner. Over 1,500 people joined the Mississippi governor and four congressmen at that gathering. Later that year, Jackson State University students marched through downtown Jackson. They demanded Mississippi Attorney General Jim Hood prosecute Edgar Ray Killen for the Freedom Summer murders. Attorney General Hood was asked by media if he would reopen the case against Killen. He said he would not be persuaded by a motion but wanted to look into the case and measure his decision against facts. New facts would come to light from an unexpected source. After his release from prison, Cecil Price worked different jobs around Philadelphia until the 1990s when he was hired by an independent third-party commercial driver's license examiner. He conducted road driving tests for people who wanted to obtain their CDL. Price began to sell passing test results without administering the test. When he was caught, he faced charges for filing false federal government forms with the Mississippi Department of Public Safety, which was under the jurisdiction of the U.S. Department of Transportation. He pleaded guilty for filing false statements and was offered a deal from Attorney General Hood's office if he would cooperate with them, provide new information about Freedom Summer murders, in return for a sentence of three years probation, Price agreed to talk. In the summer of 2000, he was interviewed by investigators and attorneys with the Mississippi Attorney General's office. Cecil Price admitted he informed Edgar Ray Killen he arrested the civil rights workers, and Killen made contact with him in a car lot in downtown Philadelphia. Price said Killen told him to release the victims and Klansmen would follow the core station wagon that needed to be stopped by an officer on their way back to Meridian so the workers could be turned over to the Klan. 
crisis statement included confirmation of the men present at the murder scene, corroboration that Roberts and Jordan were the shooters, and confirmation that Killen gave the order to release the workers from custody and then made sure he had an alibi while the plan was carried out. State authorities spoke to defendants and witnesses from the 1967 trials, which may have stirred up some trouble for Cecil Price, who would have been a powerful witness at a murder trial, had he lived. Price died on May 6, 2001, after falling from heavy equipment while he was on a job in Neshoba County. Rumors have persisted to this day that Price's death was not accidental. It was investigated, but authorities were never able to confirm it was anything other than an accident. The Mississippi Attorney General and District Attorneys spent the next few years working with the FBI to unearth new evidence that could support a state murder indictment. In January 2005, Edgar Ray Killen was indicted with three counts of murder by a Mississippi grand jury. On June 21st, 41 years to the day Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner were murdered, a Neshoba County jury convicted Killen on three counts of manslaughter. Killen was sentenced to 20 years for each count. He remained incarcerated in the Mississippi prison system until his death in 2018. In June 2016, Mississippi Attorney General Hood announced the Mississippi burning case was officially closed. The decision was detailed in the official report from the state, which reads, With the passage of nearly 50 years, few persons with any direct knowledge of the facts relevant to the June 21, 1964 murders still remain alive. Most of the original cooperators and confidential sources are deceased. Many of these elderly witnesses have understandably imperfect recollections. Other witnesses are reluctant to provide information. Some witnesses, despite comprehensive efforts, including pursuit of evidence to support federal prosecution for false statements, nonetheless appear to have accomplished their intention to continue to conceal crucial, relevant information. These realities impacted our investigation, and the current prospects of uncovering any further information useful for prosecutive purposes. But it should also not be forgotten that nine men have been held accountable for this crime. The Kellen verdict did hold meaning for the Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner families. James Cheney's brother Ben said his then 82-year-old mother Fanny was pleased with the verdict and felt that value had finally been placed on the life of her son by the community. On August 16, 1964, Fanny Lee Cheney had stood on a platform set on the ashes of Mount Zion Church and spoke at the memorial service the congregation held for Goodman, Schwerner, and her son James. Well, you all know that I am Fanny Lee Cheney, the mother of James Cheney. Y'all know what my child was doing? He was trying for us all to make a better living. And he had two fellows from New York. Had their own home and everything. Didn't have nothing to work. But they come here to help us. Did y'all know they come here to help us? They died for us. They died for us. Now, if we gonna let that be in vain, I can't let my child wait go in vain like that. 
I will help. And I need all of you all. Following her son's murder, Fannie Lee Cheney became a civil rights activist, suing five Meridian restaurants for racial discrimination. Ultimately, the Klan drove Fannie Cheney out of Mississippi. Cross was burned on her lawn. Her neighbor's house, mistaken for her own, was burned down, and shots were fired into her house. She was fired from her job as a baker because of her activism and was never able to find work again in Meridian. By 1965, she made the decision that for the safety of her children, she would move to New York, which is where she lived for 30 years until she retired to a small town in New Jersey. Fannie Cheney returned to Mississippi in 2005 to testify against Edgar Ray Killen. Her emotional testimony in which she recounted the last time she saw James alive, leaving her house with Michael Schwerner and Andrew Goodman, lasted 12 minutes with no cross-examination. Fanny Cheney died in 2007 at the age of 84. In 1966, Andrew Goodman's parents, Carolyn and Robert Goodman, founded the Andrew Goodman Foundation. Until her death in 2007, Carolyn directed the foundation to raise money and support activists whose work expressed the values for which Andrew stood, civil rights and social justice. Mickey Schwerner's wife, Rita, boldly spoke of national prejudice while speaking at national press conferences during the search for her husband and after confirmation came that he died alongside Cheney and Goodman. Following his death, Rita remained in Mississippi for a time to pursue civil rights work. Rita Schwerner became an attorney and remained committed to advocacy for civil rights. History has shown the Mississippi Freedom Summer Project had a profound effect on Black Mississippians. One of the most immediately successful results were the Freedom Schools. Forty Freedom Schools opened and served 3,000 students in the state. Voter registration for the black population jumped from just below 7% in 1964 to 66% by 1969. The national attention of the Freedom Summer is also credited in helping convince President Johnson and Congress to pass the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, which ended segregation in public places and banned employment discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. In June of this year, the 59th Annual Memorial Service for Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner was held on the grounds of Mount Zion Church in Longdale, Mississippi. Members of the church hold the service every year to make sure the men are never forgotten. A stone memorial on the church grounds commemorates the activist, and nearby, a historical marker reads, on June 21st, 1964, voting rights activists James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner, who had come here to investigate the burning of Mount Zion Church, were murdered. Victims of a Klan conspiracy, their deaths provoked national outrage and led to the first successful federal prosecution of a civil rights case in Mississippi. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. 
the full power and influence of the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission to fight for segregation and against civil rights activism wasn't known until the first commission records were made public in 2002. The commission had been officially abolished in the 1970s, and at the time, it was ordered records be sealed until 2027. The records were only made public in 2002 because of legal efforts for public access by the ACLU. The records revealed the state's complicity in the Freedom Summer murders. Commission investigator A.L. Hopkins reported information about the workers to the commission. His report included the core Meridian station wagon license number. That information was passed directly to Neshoba County Sheriff Lawrence Rainey, a recognized member of the KKK. As they were feeding the lie to the public that civil rights workers weren't missing, that it was all part of a civil rights publicity campaign, the commission knew where the bodies were buried weeks before they were discovered. In the commission files, there's a hand-drawn map that shows the exact spot the civil rights workers were buried on Old Jolly Farm. The commission also assisted in the defense of Byron Della Beckwith, the man who assassinated civil rights leader Medgar Evers in Jackson, Mississippi in 1963. Della Beckwith's first trial ended with a hung jury. During his second trial in 1964, Sovereignty Commission investigator Hopkins provided Della Beckwith's attorneys with information on potential jurors. The defense used that information in the selection process, and his second trial also ended in a hung jury. The Sovereignty Commission collaborated with government officials, law enforcement, and businesses to pressure Black Mississippians into giving up activism. This included economic pressure that was reflected in what happened to Fannie Cheney. The commission pressured business owners and companies to fire employees known to be activists and encouraged eviction of activists from rental housing. One of the most surprising reveals when those records were made public was the naming of spies in Mississippi, including black detectives who were paid to provide information on the activities of the NAACP and organizations like CORE during the civil rights movement. The Sovereignty Commission was active until 1973. Once William Waller became Mississippi governor in 1972, he kept a promise he made during his campaign. In April of 1973, he vetoed the Sovereignty Commission's annual appropriation bill and closed the agency. You can view the record yourself at the Mississippi Department of Archives and History website, and I would highly recommend you watch a documentary called Spies of Mississippi that takes a deeper look into all aspects of the Sovereignty Commission. You'll find a link to read the records, watch the documentary, along with all the sources for this episode in the show notes at southernmysteries.com. Thank you so much, as always, for listening to Southern Mysteries. We're